Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, June the 30th, 2023, last day in June. Uh, the question that we're going to be talking about today uh, will exist in July and August and onward and onward throughout the 21st century. What is the, the new oil for the 21st century? Um, goes without saying, it's become a cliche that it is data, but there are other ways of thinking about the new oil. Where is the new power? What will countries fight over? Uh, we've done a number of shows touching on this. Uh, one with a very interesting writer, Natalie Koch, whose new book, um, Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia, uh, talks about the way in which um, the Saudis are, are buying up uh, Arizonan land, perhaps because of the scarcity of water and food in the Arabian Peninsula. We've touched on the central role of food as well in, in all sorts of other ways. One with the historian Scott Reynolds Nelson uh, on the history of grain. And in our conversation, he has a new book out, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. We talked with uh, Scott Reynolds Nelson about the implications of the Ukrainian war in terms of food. And he suggested that one central reason for the Russian invasion of Ukraine was to acquire their grain fields. Water is also important. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with the world's, one of the world's leading authorities on water, the Berkeley-based um, uh, scientist Peter uh, Glick, uh, he has a new book out, The Three Ages of Water, Prehistoric Past, Imperiled Present, and A Hope for the Future. It was about the scarcity of water and the specter of water wars in the Middle East and elsewhere. So maybe the new oil for the 21st century is food and water. Maybe the wars of the 21st century will be fought over increasingly scarce resources. That's certainly uh, the message of a really interesting and important new movie uh, out called The Grab. I actually saw it last night in San Francisco at the University of San Francisco. It's not on general release yet. Uh, still doing the, uh, doing the festivals circuits, done very well, appeared at, in, uh, in, in Toronto, Mill Valley and elsewhere. Really impressive uh, movie, and uh, one of its stars is my guest today, uh, Nathan Halverson. Nate Halverson is a senior reporter and producer at the uh, Center for Investigative Reporting over in uh, Emeryville in the East Bay, and he is also the producer and lead reporter on The Grab. So he's joining us from his home in the Mission just down the hill from me in San Francisco. Nate, have I, uh, have I done justice to this idea of the new oil of the 21st century? Is that the, the core narrative in The Grab, the idea that all these countries from Saudi Arabia to China to the United States are grabbing land, scarce resources for future water and food wars? 
Yeah, yeah, you did a you did a great job, great intro. Thank you for that. I think it is uh, it is the idea that is presented in the film um, from people within the defense community, from within the U.S. intelligence community, um, uh, folks in in China and Russia that we sit down and interview, and folks running some uh, some of the largest uh, private equity firms um, that are beginning to turn their sights uh, onto the new commodity. Uh, which is water, virtual water in the form of, of, uh, of food. The, the movie um, is uh, panoramic, global. I mean, you, you went with your, your crews, your film crews, you're the lead reporter and um, the, the star, if you like, of the movie. You went to Zambia, you went to China, uh, you went to Russia. Uh, of course, you spent a lot of time in the United States. What were you looking for in the grab? In terms of all this reporting, I mean, it, yeah. it's it's uh, it's um, it's 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 an impressive. Uh, you got a lot of air miles, Nate, out of filming this thing. What, what what was the the smoking gun, if you like, in the grab? Well, I I think um, the goal was I was beginning to hear, and just to back out, you know, back in. 2013, I knew nothing really about the food and water industry, and I had been working on a PBS Frontline documentary um, looking at organized crime in Macau and how that was um, allowing for financial flows into the U.S. financial system. And it gave me a background in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, digging around um, there. And when Smith, when Shuangwei, which was China's largest uh, meat company, purchased Smithfield Foods, which was the world's largest port company in Virginia, um, Congress sort of said, well, why? Why? Is it just one big company buying another? Or is there a national security strategy um, behind this takeover? This was back in uh, 2013. So just for yep. our, our viewers and listeners, uh, a Chinese company bought Smithfield Foods, which is the world's largest uh, producer of pork and American company. Why? Why were you so concerned about this? This is one of the, the central narratives, if not the central narrative in the movie, The Grab, uh, Nate. Yeah. Well, you know, at the time I I came in and really came into the story not knowing a whole lot. Um, but by the time I was finished with it, um, having gone to China and spoken to the, spoken to the president of Shuangwei and others and, and gone and met with people in the U.S. intelligence community, what became clear is that China has prioritized food and 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 water um, as top national security issues for the country, you know, top issues for the country, all the way up to Xi Jinping. Um, and they're they're consistently part of the country's five year plans. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that we've done a number of shows on Xi Jinping, of course, uh, perhaps the most powerful man in the world, certainly the most powerful man in China. Um, your narrative of Xi Jinping is one I hadn't heard before. We've done shows on him, which present him in all sorts of ways. You suggest that he is he he has been defined by his experience of the Great Famine. Yeah, I think obviously it's going to be among his experiences that define him. Um, but I think it is very true. I think you know we look to my, we look to our grandparents' generation here in the U.S. that went through the Great Depression, um, and what when we talk to folks like Hung Zhou. Um, in, in Singapore, who's Chinese, you know, one of the things that's clear and stands out and is talking to a lot of folks is that um, Xi Jinping and other uh, of the, the, the ruling elite in China um, went through an experience that they don't ever want to go through again. 
um, which is the Great Famine. And they have consistently prioritized food and water um, as top level, you know, top national securities. And even when I sat down with Fred Hu, who is the former head of uh, Greater Goldman Sachs for China, um, you know, he was explicit in saying for a one party system, it is requisite that people feel they have the, the food and water resources that they want. Um, and so this is a political stability issue. Uh, for China, for the leadership. You're obviously not a China expert, but I have to say that I, I'm not 100% convinced of your association of the Chinese state with Chinese business issues. It's the kind of thing that uh, the right wing of the Republican Party now does with TikTok, suggesting that any Chinese company, by definition, is the arm of the state. Why do you believe that? Um, well, uh, Shuangwei, for instance, was a state-owned enterprise. Uh, Wan Long, who's the chairman of, of Shuangwei, um, was a member uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, um, and so what we saw here, and, and, and I went and I sat down with um, the, the chairman's son, Robert Wan, who was um, then a vice president of the company. And he made it really clear that they are operating in their system um, as an independent business, but nonetheless have to follow the directives of the Chinese government. Um, so it is, it, is a, it is a fundamentally different form of business and governance than what we see here in the States. It's certainly not the way, though, that Smithfield is presented. Uh, I, I'm no expert, but they present themselves at least uh, online as, as an American company, even Wikipedia represents them as American company. I wonder whether there's also an, another side to this, um, Nate, on the meat side. We did a show with Chloe Sorvino recently, uh, another investigative reporter like you. She has a new book out, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. Um, how did the making of the film and the narrative of the film, how was it shaped by your sense of our dependence, perhaps even addiction on meat? Well, what I looked at was um, I had gotten uh, some State Department cables that were released by WikiLeaks. Um, I, thought, I thought you said steak departments, but of course, <laughs> state departments, right? Yeah, um, that where they had gone and done a tour of Nestle. And this was back in 2009, like the height of the financial crisis. And the chief economist of Nestle basically said to them, forget about the Great Recession. It, it's going to pass. The thing you need to be focused on is that the world is running out of enough water to grow enough food to feed everyone. And this is the great crisis of our time. Um, and Nestle, of course, being the largest food company in the world with some of the best water modeling in the world. Um, and one of the things they pointed out in this cable, this classified cable, um, was the, the chief economist said that if the rest of the world ate as much meat per capita uh, as Americans do, we would have run out of fresh water in the year 2000. Uh, so it's not, you know, this isn't me positing my personal beliefs. Uh, this is the, this is Nestle, the world's largest food company, um, saying that if the rest of the world ate as much meat as Americans do, um, our fresh water supplies would have been kaput, you know, quarter of a century ago. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think, uh, Chloe Savino would disagree with you. We've done all sorts of shows on on the impact um, of meat and of uh, the cattle industry uh, on the environment. Another character 
who I have to admit, I was surprised showed up in your narrative. Uh, one of the central figures, perhaps the the darkest of the villains, uh, a certain Eric Prince. Uh, tell us about Prince and, and his role uh, in in your narrative in The Grab. Yeah, well, you know, after I did the Smithfield piece, I, I went and I talked to folks in the U.S. government. I said, so what other countries? Um, because, you know, the CIA did a national intelligence estimate, which is the highest intelligence product our government does back in 2012 on water and then a subsequent, uh, I believe, uh, ICA in 2015 on food. Um, and so I went and I said, what other countries are having issues with this? Um, and one of them that came up was Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, you know, you mentioned the book earlier that talks about Arizona and Saudi Arabia. I was the reporter that actually broke the story uh, that the Saudis were going to Arizona. I broke that story in 2015 um, that, you know, because Saudi Arabia, because King Abdullah um, at the time was so concerned back in the late uh, 2009, 2010 about running out of water, they had basically put it's out. It's interesting, though, as, as Natalie Koch notes, um, that this has been going on for a hundred years. That the the Saudis were always already interested in 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 uh, in Arizona in the middle of the nineteenth century. This is not necessarily that new. Well, what's interesting is that the Arizonans actually sent a delegation to Saudi Arabia back in I think the sixties or seventies to start showing uh, the Saudis how to how to uh, farm the desert over there. But in the nineties, the Saudis were the world's sixth largest exporter of wheat. The Saudis basically through government subsidies beginning in the late 80s, mid 80s, um, began uh, running oil derricks across the country. Um, I think there is a, uh, a former CEO of a Saudi bank, uh, Eli, uh, gosh, what is Eli's last name? Um, he wrote a paper called uh, uh, Camels Don't Fly and Deserts Don't Bloom back in like 2004. And what he shows is, is that basically in a generation through government subsidies and effectively misgovernance, the Saudis drained their aquifers. And so um, within a 30 year period, you have uh, you have wells and springs that are mentioned in the Bible um, that had gone dry, that were no longer in existence. And so the difference from that period is that by the late 2000s, uh, they were no longer the world's sixth largest exporter of wheat. In fact, they were beginning to contemplate that their aquifers were so low that they couldn't even grow those types of crops in the country anymore, which is the case today. Uh, there is a complete ban on, on hay and wheat production uh, in Saudi Arabia. So let's go back to Prince, uh, a notorious man in America, the founder of the private military company Blackwater, the brother of uh, Betsy DeVos, one of the wealthiest families in America. And of course, she was the ed so-called education secretary under Trump. He's also the founder of Frontier Services Group. How does Prince fit into your narrative? Right. So these uh, countries that have a scarcity of water um, are beginning to go out across the world. And of course, they're looking at wealthy markets like the United States because they can afford to. These are stable markets, relatively speaking. Um, but they're also looking at, quote unquote, frontier markets. And Eric Prince has offered his services to help uh, countries that are looking for these types of resources. And so he started a company called Frontier Services Group, excuse me, Frontier Resources Group, um, which was uh, 
where he announced he was going to be going into Africa and he was going to be looking for many of the, the minerals that we associate with the 20th century, hydrocarbons, uh, other minerals, diamonds. But the biggest focus of that portfolio of Frontier Resources Group was going to be agriculture. And uh, what they knew was that the countries were scrambling to control food and water resources, especially became especially prominent uh, after the Arab Spring, uh, after the world saw wheat prices spike and it destabilized governments um, and led to, uh, to leaders being toppled. And so it became, again, a national security issue for countries to begin to ensure that they had the food and water resources. And the reason I say food and water almost interchangeably is because when a country runs low on water, the way that they can ship water from one place to another isn't by filling oil tankers full of water. That would just take way too much water. 70 to 80 percent of the water we use is for crops. So if you want to ship virtual water, if you want to ship water, what you do is you use the water wherever it is to grow the thing that you use the most water for, which is food, and then you ship the food. And economists would call this virtual water. Yeah, I thought the section in the movie on the Arab Spring was really interesting and important. Uh, many people have written about the role of water and food in the failure of the Arab Spring, the beginnings of the Syrian civil war, which you touch on too. The interesting thing about Prince and his role at, um, as a, I guess, a, almost like an, a venture capitalist uh, in Africa, Frontier Services Group, is that I'm guessing, um, Nate, he's directly competing with the Chinese. So the new colonialism in Africa is not the search for copper or minerals or gold or silver, but for food. And, and, and the core competition is between guy, Americans like Eric Prince and the Chinese, who, of course, invested billions, perhaps trillions of dollars in Africa. Yeah, that's that's right. When he started Frontier Resources Group, um, but he was looking and taking funding from and this is why we started talking about Middle Eastern countries, um, but from Middle Eastern countries um, to go in and to to buy up farms and to um, be able to export those crops back. Um, but that was Frontier Resources Group. And at some point he went. Oh, to, I apologize. No, that's yeah, he, he at some point he went to Hong Kong and started Frontier Services Group, which was explicitly to help um, the to ch help Chinese commerce um, in Africa. You know, basically you had somebody who was a highly skilled soldier um, who hired other highly skilled soldiers to help the U.S. government in Iraq and Afghanistan um, that was now taking those, you know, sort of. Uh, difficult to operate environments and the logistic know-how and taking those to frontier markets um, and beginning to go in and um, uh, take control of those resources. Yeah, I guess he took his MAGA cap off, uh, at hmm. least uh, at Frontier Services Group. It's interesting, of course, that Prince ran uh, Blackwater, privatized uh, military consultants, essentially a mercenary army. We know over the last couple of weeks, much of the news of the world has been focused on a, a, an equivalent Russian privatized army. How much of this whole process, Nate, is a sort of an almost absurd logical consequence of neoliberalism and the privatization of everything? We've done many shows on that on Kino. Yeah, that I mean, I would say that that's probably not my area of expertise. 
um, talking about neoliberalism. I mean, I obviously think that that Prince, um, you know, very publicly stated he wanted to recreate what is it the um, you know some of the the colonial privatized companies um, that existed um, to be able to go in and um, take over and control the resources of other countries um, and to be able to export them back to wealthier countries. Um, and, um, you know, and I think the world has seen the consequences and is dealing with the consequences of those former practices. Um, and so this idea as people express in the film that we're seeing, uh, a new colonization of Africa around food and water resources. And that, you know, is happening. Well, the other resources that traditionally have been grabbed up in, in Africa and elsewhere, um, continues. So it is really an entirely new and growing pressure um, for these additional resources. The difference is that when you dam up a river that a community downstream has uh, utilized for centuries, millennia, uh, for their existence, for their culture, um, to stay alive, um, it is fundamentally different than when you go in and plug in a copper mine and start extracting those resources. When you start extracting the vital resource needed for life, um, it begins to foment um, uh, civil discord. Um, and in some cases, uh, you know, uh, militant groups, uh, they call them non-state actors. Uh, well, yeah, you, you touch on Baka Haran. We, 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 mm -hmm. we had some shows on that. I, I do think there is a neoliberal element here in your... Um, in the in the in the movie when you and your team go to zambia you cover the way in which investors have appropriated the ownership of of the land which has been owned by many generations by families um so in a sense um the the darkest arts of uh, of, of of neoliberals like uh, eric prince seem to have impacted on land ownership in, in places like Zambia. Is that what you found in the movie? Well, we certainly found that uh, Western corporations, Eastern corporations were going in and, and, and as we show in the film, the impact of that is people being displaced from their ancestral land, um, being relegated to land that doesn't have access to water, that isn't arable, that they can't grow their food, um, results in, in, in their sort of um, in a, in a, it's a as as Brig Sieshatema, uh, who's this amazing attorney that's fighting against this tide in the film, as he says in the film, uh, it's a slow death sentence. It's a slow death sentence for these communities um, when they're removed from their ancestral land, and that's uh, that's the practice that we document that's happening uh, in the film. One of the most memorable scenes in the film, Nate, was when you and your crew were, I think, thrown out of Zambia. Uh, were you? Was this a a politically so politically sensitive that you weren't even allowed in and then eventually you got back in or maybe some of the the shooting was uh done uh, uh before you were thrown out what were the politics of making this film and, and why was it such in some ways a dangerous enterprise yeah i mean as far as i know no other journalists have been um kicked out of zambia and um and uh, we were we weren't we were we were detained upon entry 
they had expected us. They were quite ready. a compliment. You must have been in in a, in an odd way thrilled. Well, I think Bo, it goes to your point, which is that it underscores the sensitivity of reporting on food and water because it it, it was very clear what we were going there to report on. The government knew it. Uh, the Zambian intelligence uh, had targeted us. Um, and, and worked with the government um, to make sure that we couldn't actually go in and report. I had previously been there. I had previously gone. Um, so we did have um, footage on the ground and we were able, um, despite not being able to get back into the country, our crew to this day, um, able to continue to report on what was happening there. Um, but it, it does go to underscore that we went in to report on, on farms. We went into Zambia to report on farms, and we were the first journalists, as far as we know, um, that have been uh, blocked from going in and kicked out and removed from Zambia. Yeah, and you continue in the good work of the uh, the uh, Center for uh, Investigative Reporting, based in uh, Emeryville, where you uh, where you work. Uh, the movie was. Um, was uh, made, uh, shall we say, the writer, director, producer, Gabriella Cowperthwaite. Uh, what was your relationship or what is your relationship with her? She wasn't at the showing in San Francisco last night. I have invited her onto the show. Maybe she'll come on for another time. Gabrielle is amazing. So basically what we were able to do was we took the investigative reporting that takes years and years from the from Center for Investigative Reporting uh, and we paired it up with, you know, a master storyteller from Hollywood, um, Gabriella Copperthwaite. Of course, she did Blackfish um, about SeaWorld um, was her, her documentary she did. Yeah, from uh, 2013. Correct. Yep. And uh, a lot of folks might be familiar with that. And then she went on and she's done scripted films like Our Friend with um, Casey Affleck and Jason Siegel and Dakota Johnson. And just has another movie that uh, another scripted film that came out called it's about a murder on the International Space Station called ISS that just premiered at Tribeca. Um, so she is a master storyteller. And the idea here was to take um, in-depth, strongly vetted investigative journalism and pair it up with a, a Hollywood director. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a long and lengthy process. And we were super grateful that somebody who could just be making Hollywood movies on well-catered sets in Los Angeles was willing to go to Zambia and get detained and then kicked out with us. Um, we're super grateful. It's not just a critique, the grab. Uh, last night in the discussion after the movie, you talked about some fixes. What needs to be addressed here? I mean, in some senses, I guess you're never going to be able to confront this economic land grab. I mean, if, if, if the capital's there, they will invest in other companies, other countries, food companies. But what what should ordinary people, um, Nate, uh, who, who are troubled by this one way or the other, what can they do? What, what should we collectively do to address this issue? Right. Well, I think, um, you know, we talked about in the Nestle cable in which Nestle said that if the rest of the world ate as much meat as Americans, we were to run out of fresh water in the year 2000. I think people, you know, we there are people that will say that if the Chinese meat consumption trend, increasing meat consumption continues, that will never the world will never be able to meet its greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and that's true. But you have to remember that uh, on average, the, the Chinese citizens eating half as much meat per capita as a U.S. citizen. Um, and so there are from a, just a very like, what can I do today? People can look at what they're putting on their dinner plates. 
Um, they can be more conscientious about the fact that the biggest impact they can have on their water use isn't reducing their showers. Um, it is it is choosing what they put on their dinner plate at night. Um, and then I think from a uh, you know from a bigger standpoint, this this topic has been known. The, what the film presents has been understood and known within the CIA, the DOD, within the Chinese intelligence, within the Chinese governance, within Russia uh, for a long time. But there hasn't been enough political will within the U.S. to begin to deal with what the 21st century is going to be bringing. Um, and so I think just people need to be informed and they need to begin to push for, for, for legislation um, that will begin to address the challenges that the world is going to face uh, uh, around food and water in the 21st century. Um, and one of the one of the examples there is just that the water had the, the U.S. has no national water policy. So other countries, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel, other countries um, have national water policies. You've seen Israel go from having water deficits to now having water surpluses by in implementing a national water policy and using that excess water strategically in their region. Um, the U.S. still has not tackled a domestic water policy. Um, and I think uh, I think there is a growing interest within some in the U.S. government to do so. Is there a perhaps a, a, a hidden protectionist or half hidden pr a protectionist argument in the movie that Saudi companies shouldn't be or Saudi investors shouldn't be about allowed to buy land um, in Arizona or that Chinese companies shouldn't be able to buy uh, large American food companies like Smithfield? Does your movie reflect a growing consensus of? Uh, of nationalism as a, as as a way of confronting the globalized marketplace of the early 21st century. Yeah, it's a great question um, because I think you mentioned this earlier. There is a growing movement um, among some political parties um, to basically say uh, uh, foreign companies or foreign countries owning these commodities or coming in and buying land is inherently bad. And that's not what the film says. You know, I used the example when I when I broke the story uh, about the Saudi Arabian company Al Mirai Fondamante buying up effectively 15 square miles in the Arizona desert. It wasn't just to say Saudi Arabia is in the U.S. It was specifically to say a country that depleted its own aquifers. Um, and here's how. Right. And then now they're in a place that is also non-renewable or, you know, where Fondamonte is, I think the recharge is 2,000 acre feet per year. Um, well, the water use can be probably north of 90,000 acre feet per year. And an acre foot is just how much water it takes to cover one acre um, in a foot of water. Um, and so the idea there is that we don't theorize that aquifers can be depleted. Um, it's happened. It happened to Saudi Arabia and we've seen the impact. And now we see that country uh, in Arizona in another place that will go dry, um, that those aquifers will be depleted because they're being so radically overused relative to the recharge. Um, and so it was to draw that parallel. And so, you know, if a, the U.S. is the largest food exporter in the world, we're a food superpower. I don't think anybody is looking to say, oh, Saudi Arabia is in Nebraska or Iowa and they're exporting alfalfa back um, because those areas, by and large, aren't having water issues. 
um, but in an area where the, uh, the aquifers are being depleted and the local residents are going to lose their homes or watching their groundwater wells go dry, um, the impact is there, the, the consequences are there. And those are the parallels that we try to show that what we're effectively seeing is a domino effect now around water depletion around the world. Nate, I wonder, the, the one thing that was missing from the film, and, and I know you had a huge amount of footage, you couldn't fit everything in, was a technological fix. In Africa, for example, I could see one way of addressing land ownership was with blockchain. We've done lots of shows on that. And then, of course, there are all these new technologies developed in Silicon Valley and elsewhere around controlling obesity, controlling people's appetites, which you talked about earlier, controlling what we eat. Um, and then, of course, technology is about growing food, growing uh, artificial meat, developing artificial meat, establishing farms in cities. Is there a role for technology here? I mean, technology at the moment doesn't have the best of names, but could we conceivably use technology to address some of the problems you, you, you raise in the movie? Yeah, I think technology is definitely one of the components to addressing and this issue because the, the truth is, is that the issue is solvable, right? Um, there are enough calories in the world today to feed everyone and there, there is enough water to grow enough calories to feed everyone in the year 2050. Um, so the issue isn't necessarily that we can't grow enough food, it's that we don't distribute it, you know, and so um, there are there are multiple things that can be done here. The food, the water isn't always where we need it to be. The food isn't always where we need it to be. Um, and technology definitely plays a role in that. Um, obviously, here in the Bay Area, there are a lot of food tech companies that have come up. Um, there's what Air Protein um, that's using NASA recipes for um, for I think creating proteins in, in space. Um, that goes back to maybe the 80s, 90s. I'm not exactly an island expert on air protein, but there are alternative ways of creating food that would significantly reduce the water inputs. Um, Molly John, who's in the film, she used to be the Dean of Agriculture at the University of Wisconsin. She went to DARPA, you know, the place that invented the internet because the Department of Defense recognizes that there needs to be a radical transformation of the food system. And they're looking in part at technology um, to be part of that solution. Absolutely. I'm guessing, Nate, this conversation is making people hungry, not maybe for food, but to see the movie itself. Um, as we said, it's on the, the festival circuit at the moment. When are ordinary people going to be able to see it? People who, who, who won't have the opportunity to see it at a festival. Yeah, we're, we're, they're in the late stages of talks around the distribution. Um, and I think the latest I heard was that uh, later this fall into the winter time, uh, they're targeting to get it into theaters and on one of the streaming services. Um, and then it'll have uh, the wider distribution, um, which again is, is, was the goal of pairing up um, a team of investigative journalists with a Hollywood director um, was to be able to take sort of in-depth reporting and put it in a format um, that we could get it out to, to a large audience. So we're looking forward to that day.